0: it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, hello, Chris here. Welcome back to the Situation and Story podcast. Thank you for being here and thank you for your patience as I took nearly a three-month self-care slash mental health hiatus as I finished out my school year as a public school teacher, took some time off to visit with family, but I'm back and I'm glad you are too. The first thing I want to talk about before we get into our episode is my dear friend Hillary Leftwich's new writing business, Alchemy Author Services. She is based here in Denver, and um, I just wanted to give her a little love. So um, she's got Alchemy Author Services and then also the Alchemy Writing Workshop the former of which you can work one-on-one with her as an editor um, or evaluator or mentor for your writing. She wants to make the writing better for you. She does not want to change you as a writer. Take a look at her uh, her services at alchemyauthorservices.com. And then she has the Alchemy Writing Workshop, which was created for those who are serious about their writing, but don't necessarily have access to an MFA program or other workshops, classes, or retreats due to family responsibilities, jobs, or income. She believes responsibilities should never stop you from achieving your dream. So again, check out her work at alchemyauthorservices.com. You don't want to sleep on this. Hillary's awesome, and she can definitely help make your work better. Moving forward, we're talking with Sharon Skeeter today, the author of Dancing with Langston, a novel out of Green Writers Press. And a little bit about Sharon. She's a writer, poet, novelist, and educator. She was the fiction, poetry, and book review editor at Essence Magazine and editor in chief at Black Elegance Magazine. And she's taught at various universities and colleges such as Emerson, University of Bridgeport, Fairfield University, and Gateway and Three Rivers Community Colleges. Um, she sat down with me to talk about her novel dancing with langston which was put out in 2020 it's been quite a while since we spoke but i'm i'm really excited about this conversation so if you listen in and you like it please take time to leave a review or a rating hit subscribe follow on uh, whatever podcast service you're using if it happens to be apple podcasts don't be afraid to leave a written review or just click a star rating for me. That's going to help hugely in in growing the show. So a uh, couple recent reviews out of the Denver area. Um, Kelly Coughlin, one of my faithful listeners and friends, has said that my discussion with Melissa Fabos' new memoir, Girlhood, left her wanting to hear more from both of these women. Unlike other literary podcasts I listened to, this was conversational without being hugely digressive. So many excellent insights, points of entry to both Phoebos and Moore's worlds. And she was left marveling at Phoebos' comment that some of us act out our trauma while others of us act in. Just uh, one of the the few reviews that have been left. So like I said, if you enjoy it, please take the time to do that. And um, you may just receive a shout out on the show. As for now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with author Sharon Skeeter. Why do you write?
1: Because I have to, (laughs) (laughs) of course. Because that's what I do. I have to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I've I've always been a writer of some sort. I was an editor. I was a teacher. All of those things entail writing. So I have to write. (laughs) I don't have a choice.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So your novel Dancing with Langston was published last November, right? Yes. Before the world went. (laughs) Loco (laughs) Before
1: we don't recognize where we are Right Exactly
0: Um, So before you tell us a little bit about the novel And what inspired you to write it Can you tell us kind of who you are And where you come from Okay, I'm Sharon Skeeter I come from New York City
1: I am living in Seattle Which is where I've chosen to be For right now And probably forever But I've lived around the country I grew up in New York City, and I lived in the Bronx and Harlem, and Greenwich Village. But I also lived in Maryland. I lived in Boulder,
0: oh for yeah, about yeah. Three
1: years, yeah, which I enjoyed. And I uh, I lived in in the Boston area where I taught at Emerson
0: College. Okay, so I, I've been around the country a bit. You have. I I I lived in Boulder for a few years before I moved out out of that area to Denver, but you liked it in Boulder? It's a lot different than I New did, York City. I you know,
1: well, the thing <laughs> is, um, I don't know. I like water, you know, <laughs> yeah. and and the problem with, with living in the middle of the country was that I f- was beginning to feel a little bit landlocked. Yeah. Even though the lakes are beautiful and I truly love the mountains, but
0: I was feeling like I needed a coastline. <laughs> yeah. I relate to that. I grew up on I grew up in Southern New Jersey, and I've been oh. here for eleven years now. But next summer, I'm going back to a coast for the same reasons. Oh, you are. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. coast? The East. Back to the East Coast, but I'm gonna live in North Carolina for a bit. See oh. how that is. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. So the novel. Tell us kind of what inspired you to write it. And I was wondering kind of to what degree is it autobiographical?
1: Well, it's not really autobiographical. I call it biofiction because some of it is based on some stories that I grew up hearing from my father. Mm -hmm. But that's it. The rest, it's totally fiction. So I want to get that clear. Uh, One of the things that got me started with it was actually writing a couple of poems for an Indian journal called Remarkings that comes out of Delhi. They, mm-hmm. were doing, uh, they were doing an issue on Langston Hughes and they found out by way of other people I know that I'm distantly related to him, distantly. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I wrote these, these two poems for that issue with a little bit of the confusion of how would it be if my father actually knew him? And how would I respond to him if I had met him? I never met him and I'm really not sure if my father did. I do know that my father's aunt did, my grandmother's sister did and her family, but I don't know if my father ever did. So I wrote these poems kind of based on that. And then as it happened, because even though they were published, I was a little bit confused about them. You know, sometimes you know when your writing needs a little twerk, even if it's, even if it's already published. So I presented them in a workshop and someone said, why don't you write a memoir about? It? Well, <laughs> I couldn't write a memoir because I mean, how could I? I right. hadn't met him, so I couldn't right. write that. But it really got me to thinking about a lot of other issues related to a person like my father and his life, and Langston Hughes and his life, and how they both had a kind of a an equal intelligence, but how they went in very different directions, and why did they go in those directions? And that's that's what I was writing about. My father, by the way, was uh, I guess a generation younger than Langston. So okay. he had uh, different options. With him, it was World War Two, So he, he had to, to do that. But uh, when I was born, then, of course, he became a family man. And being a very responsible one, he took care of his family. Mm-hmm. And Langston Hughes, we all know his story. He traveled around the world, everywhere just about, Um he was well known in other parts of the world, not just the United States. And he became a, a literary figure. My father had some artistic talent. My question then was, why Why do you make these choices? Mm. You know, why Why does one choose one thing to to actually fulfill life as an artist? And mm. why does another one kind of squash that? Because of social responsibilities so that that was my basic
0: question in dealing with this fiction yeah um there i mean how so the quickly about your characters carrie is your main character um her father is kind of based on your father then kind of but he's not my
1: father
0: (laughs) right okay yeah um what what are the similarities besides, you know, the fact that he was of equal intelligence probably, uh, but but made those choices based on the social responsibilities he had? What are some other similarities maybe between your real father and Doyle? The, the uh, war stories. Mm. Those
1: are pretty much what I grew up hearing. Mm. Uh, and more, which were even <laughs> worse. But some of yeah. the... The World War Two stories I wanted to get in there because I think that there are a lot of men and women coming back from all sorts of wars mm. who are not getting some of the uh, attention that they should have. Uh, I know certainly with, with World War Two, which my father was in, and my uncle was in World. I'm sorry, in the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Those men came back and they didn't really have. They didn't have a lot of resources to deal with PTSD. Right. So they found other ways to self-medicate. They found other ways to um, hide it, mm-hmm. but it would always come out. I I know uh, in growing up, my father would tell me, every once in a while, he would tell me little stories when I wouldn't want to eat. <laughs> he would tell me stories about kids he had seen in Europe mm. who really needed to eat. And it would come out in those kinds of ways. Mm. So I, I grew up hearing that. Uh, it, it was just something that that was part of my life. And, and it gave me an understanding that the world, a lot of the world's problems were a lot bigger than my little area.
0: Yeah. Now, we're, was your father in all-black um infantries or whatever kind of like yes. yeah um what was that what was that like i mean that part has changed today but we still have the same issues with our veterans coming home with very little resources and i mean certainly more than maybe you know in that generation but what what was that like did did he talk much about that he talked
1: about it uh he talked about it in the well actually i i have. <laughs> I have somewhere in my basement a picture of that army unit that he was in. And it's very interesting because all of the the enlisted guys are all black, standing in the back, big group of them. And in the front are white officers. And as a child, that just seemed like the picture that he would show me. Now I understand the issues involved with that. Mm -hmm. He did tell me some things about it. He said that um, when the, the white officers I guess they were in the front. Frankly I don't know a lot about how wars are done but he would say that the white officers were in the front a lot of times they would be wounded or killed and then they would try to promote the the black m- military people who had uh scored high on whatever the exams were so he was offered to be an officer and he refused it because he didn't want to be in the front lines mm-hmm. um that that was one of the things that he mentioned he also mentioned mainly when he came back from the war how he found it to be disturbing that he had fought for this country he had fought for the freedom of other people and then he uh, which he respected because he didn't understand why Jews and other people in those concentration camps were treated the way they were but he came back and then he wasn't he he wasn't allowed to do certain things when he went to virginia to visit his family right, uh, right. One example he gives is uh, having to be in a different train car. Um, another one is being in Washington, D.C., and he described how he would see the Capitol building from where he was eating in a segregated restaurant. Mm. Uh, so he was saying, you know, like, okay, I fought for this country, and this is what I get. Right. So that that was that was part of what I grew up with. But I did grow up in New York City, where things
0: were somewhat different. Right. Um, Yeah. The character. So the novel takes place in one day, right? Which I love. Yes. Um, In 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 Harlem. Would you speak to? Was that always the vision you had to structure it as a one day, you know, kind of timeline? Or, if not, how did you decide on that timeline?
1: You know, it's strange. It really just happened. Yeah. I was thinking, okay, well, you know, here's the story and it's got to take place in one day. I It's not something that I had planned originally because I thought it would be longer. Mm-hmm. But it just worked out that way. I think I I thought it would be longer because there were some flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that those might take a little bit longer in actual time for those things to happen. But it really didn't. <laughs> yeah. It just worked out that way,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like it was such a perfect length um but I anyway, I love that it was in in one day. I felt like I was there in that old apartment building with them, you know, for those twenty four or however many hours um now the the issue in the book is that the the apartment building is being gentrified, right, and the a couple of the characters are in their 90s and are going to need to move on. So your main character goes based on a promise to her late father to help move them out. Um so I teach uh elementary school in a neighborhood that's currently being gentrified as well. Um what are you what are your thoughts on the fact that this is still an issue today kind of thing?
1: Well, I I think it's always going to be an issue. They were all Every neighborhood that I have ever known has changed. Yeah. I'm not saying gentrified, but every place changes. Uh, I, As I said, I grew up in New York City. The neighborhoods that I lived in and, and walked through, when I go back to New York City, they don't look the same. Okay. I lived in Greenwich Village for a number of years, and I go back and I see high-rises yeah. where I saw a, par- a smaller apartment building. So... Every neighborhood is going to change. I have a lot of of uh, mixed feelings about all of gentrification, uh, a lot of mixed feelings about it. For one thing, a lot of the neighborhoods that Black people have tradi- so-called traditionally been in, mm-hmm. they've been there because they weren't able to go elsewhere. So they were in these neighborhoods because they couldn't move to other neighborhoods because of of redlining or whatever else was going on. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of it, which kind of bothers me. (laughs) But the (laughs) fact is, (laughs) yes, to say the least. uh, But the fact is, in being in those neighborhoods, they were able to they were able to, to present their culture there. I know mm. when I lived in Harlem, there was theater, there, there was the, uh, Schomburg, there were all kinds of, of things going on that presented Black culture. And that was good because they, they made something out of it. Here in Seattle, there's, uh, there's a, a museum and there are other entities of the galleries and things, uh, mm. that are, that are around that represent black culture in what they call the CD, which is the Central District, mm. which was created for the same reason, because there were covenants against certain people living in certain areas. And in that case, not not only black people, but every group seemed to have its own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the start of why it was there in the first. Now, <laughs> we get to a point where economics change. Yeah, And job situations change for some people. So the issue is, what, what do you do with people in that case? Uh, the properties are less expensive than some other parts of major cities. And they're for sale because some of the people are dying out or whatever is happening to their families. Maybe they just want to sell. Uh, so this happens. I I know I I was looking at some of the um, at some of the places that I remember walking through and and kind of living in and waiting for the bus and all this in Harlem and looking at those places and and the the prices are insane. <laughs> it's like yeah. how can any? I know that the local people can't live there anymore. Right. So then the question is, where do they go? And that that is a big question. Where do they yeah. go? Yeah. And how do you, how do you maintain community? If you
0: yeah. Um, I love what you said about though, how, you know, even though it was corrupt and unjust how those communities were maybe formed through redlining and whatnot, that the culture was so rich. And that's something that's very apparent in your book. And I love that. So like your characters are very much part of the New York art, music dance scene in Harlem <laughs> and music music seems to permeate their lives so each time like cousin ella would put on an old jazz record of billy Holiday or ellington or something like that i would actually put the song on while i was reading (laughs) and between that and your ability to like describe a setting so perfectly it was so easy to feel like i was there with them um which I appreciated, and as a nonfiction writer myself, I access so much of my memories through music. Are you someone who does that as well, or or what made you incorporate that so heavily? Well, that I, I hadn't thought of
1: that, but that really does have to do with my dad. Yeah, he introduced me to jazz. He loved mm-hmm. jazz, and I still have his old albums
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
1: because they're they were so great. Some of them, uh, of course I can get digitally, so I can listen to right. them that way. But, uh, yeah, my father did introduce me to jazz. He loved it. He grew, I guess he grew up listening to it, but he wasn't only interested in old jazz as, as I have with Cousin Ella and Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also interested in, in new and innovative jazz for the time. So that was something else that I I was uh, inspired by, but yes, I listened to it too. Yeah, <laughs> I listened to it in some cases while I was writing.
0: Yeah, because it kind of got me in that spirit. Yeah, and I liked it. It is. It's wonderful. It it was it was fun to read to listen as I read because yeah, it just really took me to that place. You know, I'm from the East Coast, the Northeast, so I yeah. you know. You know, I have some roots down there, but it was nice. I grew up, my dad listened to blues and funk and soul. And so I had that same kind of connection too. Um, So tell me a little bit about the process of writing the book. How long, I mean, you had been a writer for a long time before this novel came out, but I kind of, how long did it take? What was the process like? Was it easy? Was it difficult?
1: (laughs) Well, I will admit that I'm used to being a magazine writer, so so I write to deadline. Yeah. so when I, when I'm told, oh, you know it's a book, you know, and you have months and maybe a year to do it, mm-hmm. what do I do? Um, I admit <laughs> i <laughs> I procrastinate i I wrote a lot of notes and i I did that. I had a lot of an idea of what I wanted to do. It was just getting it down but once I did then then after I got the first draft it was really a lot of fun going through and making it better and seeing where I had to make corrections and that sort of thing I guess that was the editor in me that was coming out yeah but but I really I really enjoyed the revision process after I had gotten it, uh the, the basic story down
0: well, and I- that
1: that part of it was good Yeah. I want to say something about the, the art situation, Mm -hmm. you know, going back to that a little bit. Uh, I had, when I lived in Harlem, I lived, uh, I was like a young teen at the time. My family moved there from the Bronx. And when I was living there, I was living in a, a a new, it was like a, a block of high rises that were new. And they were called Delano Village, and I think they were on the ground where the Savoy Ballroom had been, mm. because my father had told me about that. So it was a similar area to the area that that uh, this takes pl- the novel takes place. In.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, it was kind of like across the street from there. When I describe in the beginning the high rises, that's where I remember living and looking over on the tugboats on the on the Harlem River. Yeah but now i understand that it has com- that even those buildings are completely gentrified Cheats. with a new name that's related to savoy it's like they're using the the old name with no absolutely no reference and understanding of mm. <laughs> where it was yeah. So it's kind of uh an interesting situation the way things are being gentrified. They're mm-hmm. trying to hold on to some of the old the old
0: history without any understanding of what the history was. Yeah. Um how much how much research went into this novel as far as the history? It it, it feels like a very complete picture of the time and the the place. Um how much how much research did you have to do
1: well the the place itself as i said i i had lived there right and not only had i lived there but it it was also that i have went and had relatives who lived there so i saw different kinds of apartments i i went to city college which is up the hill from there so that was uh You know, I got to see other places around uh, this particular fictional apartment building Mm -hmm. in the the book. Uh, But for that, I didn't really have to do a lot of research. But for some of the the history that I also fictionalized, Mm -hmm. I did do some research on that. Although I have to say, I've taught... uh, I've taught literature from the Harlem Renaissance, so I had some idea of what what that was like when I when I taught it uh, at various universities.
0: Yeah, I had I, I had read that you also you know got a lot of information from the oral history of your grandmother's family, right?
1: Yes, I did get get well. That's the part when I uh, found out that Langston Hughes had actually visited some, some of the uh, relatives. And that's, that was what I got from that. I I heard that from a cousin. Wow. And I, and I also um, remember one scene uh, that I think is in the book, where when I was a very little girl, Langston Hughes was on some sort of a public TV show or something or other. I think I remember it that way, so don't hold it to me. Oh yeah, uh, but I do remember that my father was watching that, and I described that in the book mm-hmm. how he how he didn't quite know how to respond to that mm. because I think that he had been seeing himself as that as a possibility that maybe that would have been another choice that he could have made in his own life. For your father? Yes. Yeah. When he saw Langston on television doing his literary thing.
0: Yeah. That is interesting. So you you kind of spoke earlier to how one of the main questions of the book is why do some of us, you know, choose to go down the artistic path and others don't, do you think there's more to it than, you know, you said your father, you know, had you, so that was something he, he became a family man. What else might cause or might've caused your father not to go down that, not to pursue that dream?
1: Well, sometimes there, well, we all know there are a lot of social
0: pressures. Uh,
1: especially in some communities where being an artist is not, of any sort, Mm -hmm. is something that you just simply don't choose to do. It's not the responsible thing to do, even if your talent goes in that direction. I think it's getting a little bit better uh, in some ways, but I think at the time when my father would have had to make that choice, it would have been very difficult. Remember, those. That generation was coming out of, of a depression.
0: Right.
1: So they were dealing with that part of, of American history where things weren't good, and they knew they knew firsthand that things could be worse. Then he was also coming out of, of the Army, and all of those things probably pushed him in the direction of, you no, know, following my art talent just isn't the thing to do. Yeah. And then my younger brother came along,
0: <laughs> so uh-huh.
1: it would have been even more difficult.
0: Yeah. I, I Yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, what I was going to say is I think that there are a lot of programs, I mean, besides what's in the book, I think there are a lot of programs now uh, at the college level or certificate level where you can kind of combine the two. Like you can learn art management. Or you can learn uh, publishing, which is Mm -hmm. a way to deal with writing, if that's what you want to do. So there are ways to combine the the two things, which is what I have. Well, I should I say it's what I have Carrie do in a way.
0: Yeah. (laughs) No. Yeah. I wanted to talk next (laughs) kind of about Carrie. And I'm wondering what similarities you have to carry. I don't know why I feel like the book is so autobiographical when you're telling me it's not, but... It
1: really... No, I'm not... I, I have to say that uh, my father, if you're looking at that, he never discouraged me from mm. writing.
0: Okay, He never
1: did. He was never like the father that Carrie has, Okay, who's the one who really wants her to be like this, you know, professional person... Marrying this status guy or whatever. Right. No, it's not, it's not, he was never like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I, I used to, I wrote poetry when I was a kid. I liked to create things.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I would make things all the time. So I, I was never discouraged from doing those kinds of things. And he just let it be. And I, I think in some ways he encouraged me when I was, in high school, he got that there was a series called the Great Books of the Western World, and he got those for me so I could read about philosophy and whatever else. Yeah. Um, so he he was
0: uh, someone who, in a way, wanted me to be what he was. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to ask. My father, yeah, is it's kind of a similar thing. I'm a musician, but um, I couldn't see myself making a living off of it, but I could see. Even as I was young, my dad, you know, bringing instruments into the house or pushing me, you know, come to, coming to my band's little live shows and things. So I think that's interesting when our parents don't get to, you know, kind of follow their dream. Maybe they try to kind of live it out in us, huh? If, if they I, – I would say
1: as a parent – if they see that that's where the child is going, I mean, mm-hmm. I my my son likes football, right? right. <laughs> so, so I'm not I'm not going to try to make him into a, a literary writer. All right. But he, you know, that's what he likes. So when he was and he likes to play drums. So when he was a kid, I got him a drum set, and he. Had the whole garage filled with lacrosse stuff and all that, whatever. I don't know what it is, but yeah.
0: that's that's
1: sports stuff. So, you know, you try to encourage what you what you see.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He well, I, I was. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, it's okay. I was in love with. I I fell in love with music at a very young age, and I'm you know I'm sure a huge part of that is how much he loved music, but it wasn't like. He was putting me in a box or anything. Um. So... Do you do, you do that with your students? What's that? Kind of
1: push them towards... You, you're teaching elementary school, you said? Yeah, 6th grade, 5th and 6th grade. Well, they have a music component, right? do they?
0: Yeah. Anymore? Yeah,
1: oh, yeah, okay. yeah. We've okay. got
0: sports music. You know, I'm, I, I'm not going to... Like you said, I wouldn't push them or force them towards something that's not their thing, but... Absolutely, I encourage it if they're if they're interested in it, and that's that goes oh, for okay. either sports, music, art, yes, yeah, well, um, I think that's how it should be, yeah, I think everyone should
1: fulfill whatever they are exactly um so
0: and, yeah, go ahead,
1: no, I was gonna say that's what happens with Carrie,
0: yes, I was uh, gonna... in that case, her father finally gets it, right, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to necessarily give away the ending but you know eventually she does decide to in you know in some way follow that dream that she left behind as a young woman I couldn't help but think of Hughes's poem Harlem which asks you know what happens to a dream deferred which is actually the first written poem that I remember making me cry so I wanted (laughs) to talk a little bit about that and your kind of connect what is your connection to langston hughes even though he's a distant relative do you have a connection to his work do you teach his work well i did when i I, i'm not teaching anymore
1: i'm retired from teaching but when when i did yes of course there's no way to avoid Langston. yeah when you're teaching black literature, yeah. I didn't only teach black literature, but when I when I did, of course, I had to. He was very important in the Harlem Renaissance, especially mm. and to to some degree after uh, to probably to a great degree. Unfortunately, the way things were set up in the literary world um there was only room for one prominent Black writer, it seemed, mm. at a time. So there was Hughes, there was Wright, there was Baldwin, there was Ellis.
0: Mm.
1: You know, it kind of, and then after that, there was the Black arts movement and other people who were writing different kinds of things. And that began to break up a bit. But during Hughes's time, uh, for prominence, it was, uh, basically one at a time. Of course, there are all the others that we all know about, but they, you know, in, in the outside world, Hughes became uh, the face, like the poet of Harlem or something. I don't know. What yeah. what in, what impresses me though about him is that he wasn't. Uh, he knew where he was from. He knew who he was and what his his uh, own heritage was, which was actually very multicultural. Right. But he but he also knew that he was a person in the world. And I think that's truly important. Mm. He did. uh He did work in Europe. He did work uh that was related to African work. He learned Spanish and French and he translated some of the Francophone poets he did. Gee I you know I frankly I can't think of what he didn't do. Yeah. He did journalism, yeah. he did short stories, he did plays, he did uh opera librettos, you name it. Yeah. He he did it. So that's what I really appreciate about him and I think too many people don't know about all the other body of work that he did. I have a series of volumes of Hughes's work yeah. uh like compilations of his work. And it's truly impressive. Mm. Now, there are some writers who might say, well, he he tried to do too much. I don't know. I can't judge that. You know, you do what you do.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I think it's safe to say he did what he wanted to do. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that's what matters. It did. And
1: he also did things to make a living.
0: I'll (laughs) say that too. Right. (laughs) Um. In, in your novel you get a sense you know that you know he's this historical figure now um that we honor and love so much but it get the it i got the sense that he was kind of living that starving artist life
1: well he wasn't always you know he had to to live uh until he could get famous enough right. to have some money yeah. he was uh he went on merchant boats, you know, when he was a kid. His, his father, who had left the country and had some property in Mexico, really wanted Langston to, to uh, be a business person, essentially. And he sent him to Columbia University. Uh, the, the issue with that was that Langston just wasn't that interested in staying so he jumped on a boat and that started him going around the world in these menial jobs so that that's what he was doing so yeah he wasn't always well i've seen pictures of the house that he grew up in in um i guess it was ohio missouri i can't remember which state it was in where he he was uh where this particular house was mm-hmm. and it was a modest house and they were trying to sell it as this is where Langston Hughes lived, right. but it was um, it was a modest place. He grew up with his mother and his grandmother, you know, and it, it was not always a great thing for him. Yeah, he was not always the great writer.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was. I don't know. I don't even know the word, but it, it, it just felt reading the book, your book, felt cozy almost like the community. The little community and the salons that Ella would have at the apartment. It just felt so good. Um, Well, that's how
1: it would be. Also, I wanted that, I did want to set up because I wanted a comfortable place for Langston to be. mm -hmm. Given his orientation, I wanted it to be a place where he would feel that he could be open, which he couldn't at the time. even though I suspect, from what I've heard, that family members knew about him, but I don't think it would have been that good for him to make that public right. at the time. Uh, it might have destroyed his career. Right. So I—that's why I wanted this to be a comfortable place where everyone could be open. They're not always. Cousin Ella isn't always open. She has her problems. She True. feels yeah. uh, a little bit miffed about other women who are better dancers Mm -hmm. and you know so it's not always quite quite that cozy and she's got this insane friend so (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. um and that's
0: her only friend so
1: yeah it was cozier earlier right
0: yeah when they were younger not i mean it was yeah yeah, i even though z was kind of crazy i kind of i yeah she was good for the narrative. I feel like.
1: Yes, I I think so, and I think uh, since you lived around New York, I'm sure you know there are people who you might say she was a mild version of right. who, who roam the streets. Right. So, um, you know, it's it's she's a New York character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For sure. Um. Yeah. So. Who are some of your influences as a writer? Granted, you're also a journalist and you did magazine writing for so many years, but um, you said you also wrote poetry, you have your novel. Who are some of your influences?
1: Well, I noticed when I was writing the novel that a lot of my influence uh, as a writer, and you're right to say, does go back to magazine writing. I noticed my, my uh, sentence construction. Mm. Was was uh, generally a little bit shorter sentences, more declarative, more more that way, the the way you would write for a magazine. Yeah. And I noticed that, and I accept it as as part of my style. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. One one of the uh, the things that I will admit to, and I didn't realize this until I started actually writing, was that. Uh, I've been influenced by Invisible Man by by Ralph Ellison. Mm. And not necessarily the whole book as it is, but there's this book, um, Dancing with Langston, (coughs) excuse me, Mm. I'm sitting by some pollen. seemed to be um, related to one scene in which there's an old couple that's being thrown out on the street, and all their possessions are being put out on the street. Hmm. And the main character, the Invisible Man, sees this, and it really changes his trajectory in the book. Hmm. Uh, he, he sees it, and to, to see um, a kind of physical representation of black American history in these old people's possessions hmm. being thrown out. Um, really changed it now i I have to say, I didn't realize that that was was affecting me until I had actually started this book, yeah and then i said oh that that's what it was. it's been bothering me all this time. like how could you do this to these people right. so that that was something that that was uh part of it the yeah. the clarity of that scene it's a small scene in the book, but it really changes changes the way the main character sees things.
0: i mean yeah the 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 apartment cousin ella's apartment seems just so full of rich history and you do like i felt myself wanting to preserve it as a reader and wondering you know (laughs) man do they need to sell it is there something they can do how can she keep the things that are important to her um it's... Well, you see, what what you're bringing up is
1: is what I'm having Carrie do. I'm having Carrie curate the, right. the materials in, in the in the apartment, which is a way of saying, okay, how do we create this story of history?
0: Mm.
1: What do we save in history that then becomes a story of what came before us? Mm. And what she's doing when she's going through all these things. She's making the choice there, what should I throw out? What should I keep? What can I give away? All of that is is my representation of how she's curating the history of these people, which of course represents a whole group of people. Right. But but what she's doing is she's she's throwing away use stuff that isn't useful for the present. Stuff mm. that's worn out and will never be used again. She's throwing out, which Brings up, of course, the question, what is history? You know, how do we, mm. <laughs> what is history?
0: Yeah. How, it, how do we create it? You know, it seems like towards the very end. Well, in the beginning, Ella's like, I'm not leaving. No way, no how. <laughs> um, but by the end, she's ready to part with things that have become such a part of her identity or affected her identity, like the monkey and the ring and the dress and she's ready to part with them, which is powerful, and it does. It lends itself to that question, you know, who are we and, you know, how does our history make us who we are? It's very powerful stuff.
1: And in her case, it's it's uh, are we also willing to accept the scars of those mm-hmm. times? A lot of times when we look at history, we we look at oh you know it was good this guy was a hero you know someone was great and and all this business but she's willing to walk out with a wrinkle with wrinkled clothes and and her scar yeah <laughs> and and that is like saying okay this is part of it too
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know we we have to
0: deal with that part of it too it's all not great <laughs> right there's a lot of pain there and oh man when when i found out what happened to her i was like audibly like oh my god and then um jack like how
1: could she live with jack right yeah but because love is
0: more than that exactly (laughs) yeah i love the the way that this book and the characters in this book can hold contradictions and i love how Carrie grows so much in just the span of that day, right? I'm so glad. She... Yeah, well, she was kind of ready, right? I set it up so that she
1: that there were enough little hints of things going on with her, like with her husband, and all, right? That maybe she was something could have pushed
0: her to, to be ready for. Her. Yeah, she just seemed very. I was worried through most of the book, though, that she wouldn't make that decision to leave. <laughs> uh, but you know, because she was so stubborn in the very beginning and strict and kind of cold, and let's just get this done and business-like, you know. But it was really nice to see her uh, soften.
1: Well, she she is trained to be a manager, right? Yeah. <laughs> she went to business school. She yeah, she yeah. learned how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um some of some of what I'm also dealing with is is the whole question of impermanence, you know that we can't even if we want to we can't hold on to the past so it it's the question of impermanence, and that impermanence can happen in one day or it could happen in years you know it's just over time things are changing or things can change quickly in a day. And that's that's part of what's going on with with her. Yeah, she's learning that she can't. There's just some things you can't hold on to. And so does cousin Ella when she decides to to go.
0: Right. And some things you shouldn't necessarily hold on to. Right. <laughs> yeah. They might be more like chains than anything else.
1: Yeah. A lot of times you find that you you actually make space for better things. If you can give up some of the things that are useless for you then.
0: Yes. That's beautiful. <laughs> um What, uh, we can kind of wrap it up. I just want to maybe hear about some black writers that you've been reading recently or that you could recommend, um, going forward. Black writers. Well, um, uh, Frankly, I'm
1: working on my next novel, Yay. so I've been reading. I've been doing a lot. Of, I've been doing a lot of research in everything in the universe. So <laughs> I, it's hard to to say. I'll I'll say that um, I'll, I'll say something about my partner's book, uh, Charles Johnson. He has a, a new book out called Grand, and that I would recommend to everyone. It's Technically, it's for grandparents, uh-huh. but uh, I would say everyone needs those lessons. <laughs> All right. So All right. What, what he's doing is he's, he's coming to uh, his grandson, who's a wonderful little boy. He's coming to his grandson and saying, these are the lessons I would like for you to know. Mm. Well, obviously, they're lessons that maybe a lot of us should know. <laughs> right. And he's coming to it from... From the point of view of uh, a Buddhist, which he is, and he's uh, and is a, a a black man who has who's lived and done a lot of things before getting to this point of mm-hmm. being able to write about it. Um, I I've actually been dipping into some poetry because it's been easier for me to to do that and not get in my head with with other people's fiction while I'm trying to write my own right so I I don't know I looked at some uh let's see Jericho Brown uh Tretheway uh just anything that that comes up that that I happen to to see that day that I happen to like yeah I really like reading poetry for the language of it for giving me a different way of viewing the world Mm. and also of course it helps me sometimes with the way I use language.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So so that's pretty much what I, I've been doing besides research <laughs> when I want to yeah. take a break. <laughs>
0: yeah. So wait, when can we expect this next novel? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm writing I'm doing the research and writing the uh, the general outline for it and the character, all the preliminary work. Yeah, But once I get all that done, I'll be good about it this time. <laughs> I will not procrastinate. <laughs> I will just get it down. And uh,
0: I hope to, to have it finished in the next year. Nice. Is that going to come from the same publisher? I'm not sure. Okay, cool. Well, I'm so glad that Ben connected us. I love your book. I can't wait for the next one. Didn't know you were working on a second one, so that's exciting yes yeah it is thank you yeah thanks for taking the time to sit down with me and uh let's keep in touch on, on social media i think we're facebook friends now yes. so yeah. yes we are and and thank you for reading the book and for talking to me about it. thank you so much for tuning in again if you are listening from apple podcasts please just go to the um episode page on your app if you scroll down you'll see ratings and reviews you can just do a quick click for a star rating or right under the reviews there's a link that says write a review if you could please just take a few moments to do that for me i will love you forever who am i kidding i already do uh tune in next week as i sit down and chat with one miss lydia yuknovich about her most recent collection verge which recently went paperback thanks again and until next time keep reading